0: And please turn to Isaiah chapter 40. We'll also be reading from Luke chapter two. So if you have a bookmark, uh, it'd be helpful to place that in uh, Luke two after we read and then turn back to Isaiah 40. And as you're turning there, I just want to remind you again, we have these books available uh, one per household. Uh, This is a gift to all of you from the church. Come thou long expected Jesus. It's an advent devotional from Nancy Guthrie and, uh, so you can grab those. Those are up here. There's also still extra copies of Gentle and Lowly. Uh, and most people have already gotten those. But if you want one of those to give away uh, to someone, feel free
1: to grab one of those after the service. All right. We're going to be looking at Isaiah
0: 41 through 11. That's on page 599 in your pew Bibles. And then we're going to be reading Luke chapter 2, verses 22 to 32. Please pay attention to the reading of God's holy word, Isaiah 41 through 11. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go, go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those
1: that are with young. Turn now to Luke chapter 2.
0: Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. This is
1: the word of the Lord. Let us pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for... The longing and
0: the promises that we see in these texts. And God, as we dig deeper uh, this morning, as we look at your promises to us, what you have done and what you will continue to do according to your promises, God, may we have our hearts stirred up with longing. May we be comforted by your word as we seek you. And as we hear from you
1: this morning, we pray in Jesus name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, have you ever been so excited for something that was about to happen that you couldn't sleep?
0: I remember as a kid. Uh, I was probably in fifth or sixth grade. First trip to Wisconsin Dells, going to Noah's Ark and family land, and it was going to be awesome. And that night before, I just remember I could not sleep a wink. I don't know. I'm sure I eventually fell asleep, but I was that was like the most I anticipated something, even more than like Christmas Eve night, right? Like not being able to sleep because I was ready to get up and open presence, probably something we've all experienced, but that's like, yeah, you kind of do that every year and you get used to it. This was like a once in a lifetime, you know, first time going to, to the Wisconsin Dells. And uh, that I, I remember that really just sticks out in my mind. Or for you, maybe it's not being sleepless in that way, but maybe just anticipation of something coming up. Maybe it's the birth of a child. Maybe it's an upcoming wedding that you've been planning and, and waiting for, and you just feel like this is this day is never going to come. You're in such anticipation and it's this it's this great anticipation. Well, the title of the message this morning is living with a longing heart. And I think when we think of that, those examples that I gave, we usually think of that in a positive way. Right. I mean, there's some maybe there's some difficulty in waiting, but we're we're expectantly looking forward to something that is positive. I think there's also another type of longing. Uh, There's a type of longing that is more negative, and that's a longing for something to end. A recent example, uh, I'm sure you've all heard by now about the tornadoes that hit uh, many parts of the Midwest and the Mid-South. My dad and stepmom actually have recently, over the, like in the past two years, I think they bought a a winter place in Kentucky, and they went down early this year uh, before Thanksgiving, and they were about 20 miles to the east of mayfield uh which is so it's right in this bottom little corner of kentucky right above the tennessee border they're about 20 miles from mayfield the town that got completely destroyed Uh, my dad had the tv on at about uh, 11 o'clock i think it was just after 11 and they said a tornado was coming up through tennessee and heading right towards my dad's place it was a different one than the, the massive tornado and uh he had his TV on. And I think at like 10 after 11 or something like that, the power went out and their, their internet went out and they don't have like no good cell coverage there. So they were like literally in the dark, like had no idea what was happening. And my dad went out on the porch and he's like, I can hear this tornado coming. Right. And they don't have a basement. And so they were just like, all right, like, what do we do? And um, then it like, by the time that the tornado was supposed to hit, it wasn't there. And he, the next day when he had to go drive down into Tennessee to get gas and he went and like five miles from their house, there's this big ridge. And I guess the tornado like flattened a bunch of stuff and then lifted right at that ridge, like right before it hit their place. But just looking at if you, if you've seen any of that drone footage yet, um, my dad and stepmom are actually on their way back down today. And my dad, my dad used to be a logger. So he's going down to with his chainsaw to try to help do some cleanup and stuff. But you look at, that devastation. And if you look at that drone footage, I mean, this, this town that's just completely flattened. Right. And you think about all those people, what, what are they longing for right now? Right. They're, they're longing for a a place to live. They're longing to find any of their possessions. Right. And it's just this, this negative feeling of like, man, I wish we could have our things back. I wish we could have our lives back. Some of them obviously longing to be able to hold their loved ones who they lost And that's just one small example, right? That's one kind of tiny example. There are millions of people across the world daily who are longing for wars to end. They're longing for corrupt governments to fall. They're longing for genocides and famines to end. And we have to realize and we have to confess, as we've already talked about, that sin in this world causes us to long for a reality, to long for a day where we don't have these things any longer. And this song that we sang earlier, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, it was actually written in response to a similar and particular longing. In 1744, Charles Wesley was considering the situation of the orphans around him in England as he looked around and saw the number of orphans and he saw the class divide in England. He was brokenhearted and he penned a prayer that would then later on become this song. And it was literally born out of a longing for Jesus to return and to make all things right. And we'll be getting into that theme a bit today and over the next couple of weeks. It's interesting if you have your uh, worship guides or your songbooks there. Uh, If you look at the top, it it says uh, Charles Wesley. And then right next to that, it says Mark Hunt verses two and three. And then it says Roland Pritchard. So Wesley wrote this song in 1744. Roland Pritchard wrote the tune to this song in 1844, exactly hundred years later, which is kind of cool. And then verses two and three were added by uh, Mark Hunt in 1990. So Wesley originally only wrote verses one and verse one and verse four, which I didn't know because I was, I was going on uh, my Apple music and list trying to listen to all these different versions. I'm like, why is no one singing verses two and three? And then, I later found out when I looked up this song, like, oh, that wasn't part of the original song. Speaking of that, it is perfectly okay for musicians to add verses to another musician's song. This is not scripture. Uh, We are okay with adding to music. We are not okay with adding to scripture. And as we consider this song, I want us to think about that, because we're not preaching from this song as if this is inspired, Okay. Uh, we're going to be considering the lyrics from this song, and we're going to be seeing how this points us to Scripture. So we're going to be looking at a bunch of different Scriptures that we specifically read those two from Isaiah 40 and Luke 2. But as we go through this the next few weeks, we're going to be considering how the themes of this song are themes that are all throughout Scripture. So we'll read an o- Old Testament passage passage and a New Testament passage uh, for each section, and then we'll see what the scriptures have to say. And we'll use, again, we'll use the verses of the song as kind of a framework for considering the themes of scripture, just like we would do in any sermon if we had an introduction about a scene from a movie or a current event that highlighted the truths of the scripture. So we're just using this as a framework. I'm not preaching as this, the lyrics from this song as if they're equivalent to scripture. And I'm sure you all, if you've been around, you know our stance on that and our our view of scripture so just want to clarify that just in case anybody's like what are you doing but that said i do want to highlight another important concept that will help guide us over these weeks last week i mentioned that if we were going to have a bible 101 class and i was writing the curriculum i would begin our study of the old testament by focusing on three questions who is god what has he done for us and what should our response be Similarly, in the New Testament, we would ask, who is Jesus, and what has he done for us, and what should our response be? Now, this is more of a systematic theology approach. If you read uh, any like big, fat, systematic theology book, you're going to see pretty early on the categories of the person and work of Christ. Some authors might have all of that in the same chapter. Some might have the person of Christ as one chapter and the work of Christ as another chapter. But that's kind of those, right? Who is, who is Jesus? That's the person of Jesus. And what has he done for us? That's the work of Jesus. So that's a, that's a systematic theology approach as we look at those different uh, topics. And our approach in these sermons, and this is maybe getting it kind of into some nerdy theological stuff, but I think this is really helpful for us. Our approach is gonna be more of a biblical theological approach instead of a systematic theological approach. Now, biblical theology and systematic theology are not enemies. We don't want to pit them against each other. It's just different ways of approaching uh, the teachings of scripture and of understanding scripture. So here at Livingstone, we don't usually do topical sermons, uh, which usually tend to be more of a systematic theology approach. We could have a, a sermon series. What does the Bible say about the love of God? What does the Bible say about the Holy Spirit? What does the Bible say about the church? And we could preach in a systematic way, looking at what the Bible in all these different places says about that particular topic. What we normally do here is we preach through books of the Bible, which we're in Hebrews right now, taking a little break from Hebrews. And we see the themes in those books that the divine and human author are seeking to communicate to us as we, as readers of the scripture. So again, it, as we're in Hebrews right now, we're seeing the superiority of Jesus, right? We're seeing that as a theme that runs throughout the whole book. We're seeing the priesthood of Jesus and we consider those themes in, in Hebrews and that's kind of a biblical theology approach of looking at things. Another good example, uh, since we're looking at this passage in Isaiah uh, is the kingdom of God. And here's a book that's really helpful if you're into like stu- studying and digging deeper into some things. This, this uh book series is really helpful new studies in biblical theology so it's called the book of isaiah and god's kingdom a thematic theological approach so it's basically saying how does the theme of the kingdom of god come out in isaiah right how do we see this theme play out throughout this whole book so it's not just going verse by verse th- through isaiah like a normal commentary would do it's it's taking more of what we would call a biblical theology approach and taking this theme of the kingdom of god and, and that's, that's a really helpful series. Uh, also, Nancy Guthrie, who wrote the devotional that we're giving out, she has a great podcast called Help Me Teach the Bible, where she interviews pastors and scholars on different books of the Bible and kind of unpacks them. How would you teach this? And again, that's kind of a biblical theology approach, looking at the, the themes in an individual book. But expanding then beyond individual books of the Bible, biblical theology also answers the question of how the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation, unfolds certain themes. So we could look at the theme of the kingdom of God. We could look at covenants. We could look at the theme of the exodus and exile. We could look at the promised land, the temple and the priesthood, the Messiah. All these are themes that we see running from Genesis to Revelation, kind of telling this. there's this thread that connects the entire Bible and we can trace some of those themes. So how, we look at how is it thematically tied together. And this first verse here in the song, Come Thou Long-Expected Jesus, touches actually on several of these themes that we would look at when we do biblical theology. So look with me at the first four lines and let's consider those. Come Thou Long-Expected Jesus, born to set Thy people free. From our fears and sins release us, let us find our rest in Thee. Now, all of Scripture, since the fall of mankind into sin by Adam and Eve's rebellion against the Lord in the garden, all of Scripture has the constant theme of longing and anticipation. Let's just briefly consider this idea of longing and anticipation and how the theme, come thou long expected Jesus, runs throughout the entire Old Testament. In Genesis 3.15, immediately following the fall, God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. We often call this verse the proto evangelium, which means the first gospel or the first good news. It is a glimmer of hope right away, right on the heels of this catastrophic event where Adam and Eve rebel against God. There is this promise of hope and there is this longing for this future offspring, right? To come from the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. So from the very beginning of scripture, there's this pointing forward and there's this longing for this day that will come. Genesis 22, 17 and 18. After Abraham obeys God when he was told to sacrifice his son Isaac, the Lord said to Abraham your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And we know from Paul in Galatians 3:16 that this promise to Abraham was not made to offsprings plural but to offspring singular which is Christ, right? So After we read Paul say that, we can look back and we can say, okay, this promise that was made to Abraham was pointing to a person, right? Just as the promise to Eve that one of her offspring would crush the head of the serpent. So there's this constant theme that we're seeing for this this longing, for this coming, someone who will come, who will make things right. As we saw this summer in our Prophet, Priest, and King series in Deuteronomy 18.5, Moses told the people of Israel, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your people, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Right. So the people of Israel are hearing this and saying, okay, one day God's going to raise up this prophet. We need to be ready. We need to be anticipating his coming. 2 Samuel 7, 12 and 13, God told David, I will raise up your offspring after you. Who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And we see it here in our passage in Isaiah chapter 40, especially in verses 10 and 11, when we're told that the Lord God will come as a mighty king and as a gentle shepherd. And on and on and on, we could go throughout the Old Testament with these promises of the long expected Messiah
1: but we need to ask why, why this expectation, why this need and why this longing?
0: Well, the lines, lines two and three of the song talk about being set free, being released from fears and sins. This is the longing of the people who had been slaves to sin since their first parents fell in the garden. They had been slaves in Egypt under Pharaoh's tyrannical rule. They had been slaves under the Old Testament law and the sacrificial system that could not save them and that could not completely cleanse them from their sin. They had been slaves under Assyrian and Babylonian captivity and exile. And now they're slaves under Roman rule at the time of Jesus' birth. Constantly, we see this theme over and over. God's people were longing for deliverance for both things that they had brought upon themselves, their fears and their sins and the outside oppression of religious uh, political and religious enemies that they were facing in their day. I want us to think about this for ourselves here today. What are the fears and sins that we are longing to be released from? The things that we need by God's grace to be set free from. With holidays approaching and being around family at Christmas time. If you want to see your sins come out, <laughs> it's a great opportunity, right? To be around the people who know you best, to be around the people who have seen you since you were little, uh, who've seen all those things and, and we see those things come out. It's a great time of year to do some self-examination, right? And to say, Lord, you know, I'm about to go into this setting where these things might come out This is a great opportunity to say, Lord, I need to be released from these fears and sin. I need to be released from this bondage. I need to be set free and I need to learn how to to walk with you and how to love people and how to to honor others and to not sin against them. It's a great challenge, I think, uh, for us at this time of year. Move on then to the fourth line. Let us find our rest in the... Well, this should sound familiar to us. We spent several weeks in Hebrews 3 and 4 looking at the idea of rest. Uh, This could be another biblical theological theme that we trace throughout all of Scripture. How does Scripture promise rest and how do we see it fulfilled and how we see this longing uh, for future rest, this longing to be set free, as we've already seen in Hebrews. Hebrews, it's ultimately a future rest for the people of God. Though we do experience true rest for our souls in this life, in Christ, here and now, there remains a future Sabbath rest for the people of God, as it says in Hebrews 4, 9. And the rest that was tied to the promised land that was temporarily experienced by God's people, this was never meant to be the final rest for God's people. So the longing, this longing for Jesus to come, we begin to see, is more than just a longing For his first coming the old testament people of god who witnessed a partial fulfillment of their longings when the son of god took on flesh and dwelt among us they were the same ones who saw jesus rise from the dead and ascend into heaven with the promise that he would come again so the longing partly was fulfilled but then a new longing was created a longing for his return on the last day And it is in this stage of longing that the church has been for the last 2,000 years as we anticipate our Savior's second coming. This is where we find ourselves today
1: in this longing. I want us to turn now to the second half of the first verse
0: of Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. Look at verses, uh, lines five through eight in the second half. It says, Israel's strength and consolation Hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. I love how this ties together the Old Testament anticipation of the people of Israel, Jesus being their strength and consolation, and how Jesus is the hope of all the earth, of all the nations, that he is the joy of every longing heart. We must acknowledge here that there is a universality to the gospel and there always has been now to be clear we are not universalists meaning that we believe that all roads lead to the same god and that can, people can just worship god however they want and believe whatever they want but we don't say that islam and buddhism and hinduism that's just people trying to reach god in their own culture and their own language we categorically reject that idea and the bible re- leaves no such room For that type of belief. But there is a universality to the gospel, meaning it is for people from every tribe and language and people and nation, as we see in Revelation 5 and 7. So, this is the reason that I chose Isaiah chapter 40 and Luke chapter 2. They are tied together by this explicit reference to the comfort for Israel. And then There are future references in Isaiah to Israel's role as a light to the nations, which we'll see in a minute. So first, let's look at this comfort piece. In Isaiah chapter 40, you can turn there now. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 and 2, it says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. This word comfort here uh, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament is the same word that we're going to see in Luke chapter 2 that's translated consolation. So Jesus being the consolation of Israel, which Wesley uses in his hymn. But the promise here in Isaiah chapter 40 is for the comfort of the people of God and an end to their exile in Babylon. But we also see it's not only just a promise to the end of their, their exile in Babylon. We see that it's pointing forward. As we look at verse three there in the wilderness, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert, a highway for our God. That probably that verse probably sounds very familiar. A verse is actually quoted In all four Gospels, in the beginning of all four Gospels, referring to John the Baptist preparing the way for Jesus. So there is this, even here, there is this idea of this longing and this pointing forward. In Luke chapter 2, verse 25, when Simeon is introduced to us, we're told that he was a righteous and devout man who was waiting for the consolation of Israel. So this This idea here is really important. So even though they had been delivered from slavery in Egypt under Moses, even though they had returned to the land after the Babylonian exile, they had rebuilt the temple, there was still this longing for God's people. Things were still not right. God's people were still awaiting a future comfort, a more full deliverance from slavery and sin. And the key here that we often forget is that Israel was intended to experience this type of relationship with God their covenant commitment and their obedience would be a great witness to the nations around them. So God had reminded his people over and over that they had a responsibility, even in the midst of the hostile the nations around them, they had a responsibility to be a light for him. Now, Isaiah mentions this several times as he describes the role of the servant of the Lord in the context in Isaiah, this servant of the Lord is speaking about Israel god's chosen servant but we know that it also points forward to the messiah in isaiah 42 6 and 7 it says i am the lord i have called you in righteousness i will take you by the hand and keep you i will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon from the prison those who sit in darkness Now, if this was true of the mission of Israel in the Old Testament in terms of their relationship to the nations around them, then we can pretty safe, safely assume that this responsibility carries over to the church in the New Testament. We are likewise called to be a light to the nations. And the good news is that this is not just something that we have to try really hard to do. It's not something that takes creativity and constant studies in contextualization because at the end, of the end of the day, this isn't about a strategy. It's about a person. Wesley's hymn is all about Jesus. And while the servant in Isaiah was referring to Israel in that context, it was, again, it was pointing forward to the chosen servant. And we know this from Luke
1: chapter 2. So turn there now to Luke chapter 2. When Simeon holds up Jesus in his arms, he blesses God. And he says in
0: verses 29 to 32, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Jesus is the light to the nations. Jesus is the hope of all the earth. Jesus is the desire of every nation and the joy of every longing heart. We see that right away at his birth. We see that anticipation being fulfilled in him, but then still pointing forward, right? That this light is going to go out from the churches. It's going to go out into the world and people are going to hear about who God is and what he's done for us in Christ. So what does all this mean for us here today? As a people of God today, we have to be able to identify ourselves with the people of God throughout the ages. When we sing this song, when we read these passages of Scripture, when we consider the longing of God's people since Genesis 3.15 for Eve's offspring who will crush the serpent's head, we must be able to resonate deeply with this same sense of longing. And as we navigate this crazy world around us, where we rub shoulders on a daily basis with people who are longing for something beyond what their eyes can see, but who don't know it or who who won't acknowledge what it is. When we go home and are around family members for Christmas, will we, the church of Jesus Christ, be a light? Will we point them to the joy of every longing heart? I know this isn't easy. Again, this time of year where we're around family, where we're around those who know us the best, some who might be outwardly hostile to the gospel, some who might be hostile towards us because of our hope in Jesus, or others who might be simply indifferent and apathetic, which I think is the hardest type of person to talk to about the gospel. And maybe it's someone who in your life has been that way for a long time and you've been praying for that person for years and years and it feels like you just continually run into that same closed door over and over and over this is not any easier for me just because i'm a pastor it's not easier for other pastors that i know in fact sometimes i think it can be even more challenging because of people's preconceived notions about us uh went to our christmas yesterday and they're like who wants to pray and like everybody looks at me and i'm like hey how about my stepbrother pray i don't have to be the obligatory like spiritual guy all the time right well i say that because i want to share an encouraging story a couple weeks ago i was with some pastor friends we were uh, all together at a retreat and four of us were driving back after a meal in the car and one of them he said i need some advice from you guys and i asked him if i could share this by the way so uh, i won't say who it is but uh he said i need some advice he said he started telling us about his son who had kind of walked away from the Lord for a while and has has returned home and is doing really well. And he's like, but he's got this girlfriend and, and she's not a Christian and they're thinking about moving in together. And just, he's like really struggling with this. And he's, he said, I'm going to be meeting with them next week. And like, I don't even know what to say. And he knew that she had some like kind of preconceived ideas about him. And, and just collectively as a group, we were like, brother, what a great opportunity. Like who else is God going to use to share the gospel with her, but you like, you're in the perfect position. You know, he's, he's like worried about these things and like, understandably so. Right. But it's like, Oh yeah. Like why wouldn't, you know, why wouldn't God use me? And I, I sent him a text on Thursday and I said, Hey, I've been praying for you. How did that conversation go? And he replied and he said, by God's amazing grace, she prayed to receive Christ when I shared the gospel with her
1: this Saturday, we begin to meet for weekly discipleship. praise the lord it took a
0: car full of pastors to encourage this fellow pastor whose job it is right to preach and to evangelize to have the courage to share the gospel with his teenage son's girlfriend in what appeared to be this really awkward situation but god used him and god is glorified and the angels are rejoicing at her repentance and at her faith in jesus all of this tension and all of this awkwardness that all of us face living as strangers and exiles in this world hoping and praying that our words and our actions will serve the purpose of fulfilling jesus command to let our light shine before others so that they may see our good works and glorify our father who is in heaven it's all for a purpose and it's all headed to a great and final fulfillment of all that we've been talking about all of this longing
1: turn with me to revelation chapter 22 Again, this is just such a beautiful reminder of this thread that runs throughout Scripture, right? This
0: thread of hope, this thread of longing. We see it from the very beginning after the fall in Genesis three fifteen. We see this promise that is going to be fulfilled, and we looked at all those different examples, and we come all the way to the very last chapter in the Bible. Look with me at Revelation twenty two, starting in verse one. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb through the middle of the city of the street. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life. Again, here's another theme, right? We can talk about the tree of life in the very beginning and the tree of life in the very end. And this hope that runs throughout all of scripture, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for what the healing of the nations, right? This promise, the light to the Gentiles, hope for Israel, The leaves of this tree that were meant to be for for good in the beginning, right? That were turned for evil. That when Adam and Eve ate from the wrong tree and brought sin into the world, now we see this tree and we see healing for the nations brought back. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and
1: ever. The curse is reversed. The fall is is undone and everything is restored. Look with me then at the heading of the last section. If you have the ESV, I'm
0: not sure what the heading is in other translations, but the heading of this last section for verses six to 21 is what? Jesus is coming. This is the end of the whole Bible, right? This is what we've been reading and what we've been longing for. Stop and think about this for a minute. If you've got the Pew Bible, 1,042 pages. That's a lot of reading. It takes a long time to get through all of that, right? Probably about a year for most of us. 757,439 words in the ESV. And it ends with this emphasis. And this promise for every longing heart. Look at verse 7. Jesus says, behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Verse 17. The spirit and the bride. That's us. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Verse 20, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus.
1: Brothers and sisters, are we longing for his return? This is a great question for us to ask ourselves as we
0: prepare to come to this table this morning. Are we longing for his return? Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 reminds us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death, what? Until he comes. I don't know if we actually grasp that. I don't know if we actually think about that enough when we take communion. We're actually doing something. We're actually declaring something to the world. We are proclaiming that Jesus is coming back. This is an evangelistic event right here, right? We're saying to the world, our hope is not in this world. Our hope is in our Savior who came once, who we remember, right? When we eat this bread and drink this cup, we remember his body broken and his blood poured out, but we also look forward. We proclaim his death until he comes. So that means as long as there are still people in, in this world, and there are still churches, until Jesus comes, this event has massive significance, right? The Lord's Supper, our gathering together as a congregation has massive significance. And as our brothers and sisters around the world gather around this table, we are proclaiming to a world that is longing for all the wrong things, that you can have your longings fulfilled here in Christ. Let us be reminded of that as we gather together this morning at this table. Again, just a reminder, uh, this is for all of those who have trusted in Christ for their salvation. If you are not yet a Christian, uh, we would ask that you do not uh, take uh, the elements, that you would not um, participate at this time. We would love to talk to you more about what it means to follow Jesus and to be a Christian. Uh, But for those who are followers of Christ, who are in good standing in a gospel preaching church, uh, this table is open to you.